Welcome to the Aurora Cornerstone Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We hope today's message is an encouragement to you. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to... What book do you think we should turn to today? You're going to start messing with me now. Revelation. Genesis. Go to Genesis. And if you uh, have your Bibles, it's important to... uh, You can make notes, mark it down... I, uh, one of the reasons I sit so that I can, so I don't move around and I can just stay with my notes because it's important for me not to die, uh, be distracted and divert too quickly. Uh, need to go through this. Genesis, we're in a, we're in the series. I'm not going to do a recap today. If you want the recap, go on. It's on podcasts. It's on our website. You can find it there. Encourage you to do so. Genesis chapter two is where we're going to pick it up, and we got to cover the chapter today. I need to get it done so that Dr. Hughes, by the way, Dr. Hughes, he's a Harvard graduate. He's a PhD guy coming next week, okay? Uh, he's not a guy out of wannabe. He's a guy who has studied this his life. Going to be joining us next Sunday morning. We, um, I need to get this done so that he can, he has a groundwork by which he can, he can share from. I always start with a little bit of heavenly humor. I don't know how humorous it is, and I don't know how heavenly it is. I call it heavenly humor because it sounds nice. But, um, so you be the judge, it may not be funny, but Adam, heavenly humor, Adam bit into the apple. Now, all of us here who are experts in this know it wasn't an apple. We know it was simply a fruit. Having said that, let's stay with the humor. Adam bit into the apple and feeling great shame, covered himself with a fig leaf. Eve, too, felt shame and covered herself with a fig leaf. Then she went behind the bush and tried on a maple leaf, a sycamore, an oak leaf. Sorry, that was it. Okay, let's try the next one. Do you know when it was that Adam's Adam's son Cain murdered his brother? When he was able. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Okay. I wanted, people have been asking, what are the main resources? The resources are up here. I think they're up here. Can you put them up? And those are the resources. Uh, The Genesis account, I've asked them to bring a number of copies. This is the number one resource I use. It's the encyclopedia on Genesis 1 to 11. Creation Answers book. It has all the hot topics, hot buttons today being asked. And then two main websites the two main websites are from creation.com or you can go to answersingenesis.org and tons of resources and information there. Uh, so avail yourself again. There'll be tons of resources next week. Genesis 2, 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work that he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Just a few things here in regard to this. First of all, uh, creation week ends here as we move into chapter 2. And it ends with the reference here, and God rested. He rested on the seventh day. The word rest does not mean he got tired. The word rest actually means cease and desist. It was time to stop. So he stopped. And then we 
really begin to grasp what we now call the first and second law of thermodynamics today. The first and second law of thermodynamics we can find in verse 1. Verse 1, thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all of their vast array. First and second law of thermodynamics, number one. First law, a total amount of mass and energy in the universe is constant. Second law of thermodynamics is the amount of energy available to work or for work is running out. These laws together, we back it up. First law of thermodynamics, total amount of mass and energy in the universe is constant. In other words, it's not increasing, it's not growing. The second law, in, in tandem with the first, the amount of energy available for work is actually depleting. Together, it provides strong evidence the universe had a specific moment of beginning based on the first and second law of thermodynamics. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees to grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye, good for food. In the middle of the garden there were tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A bunch of little subtopics. I'm just going to mention the subtopics so we can just define when we're moving from one section to the next. Subtopic, the creation of Adam. You have the very first part, verse 7. The Lord God. The Lord God. That word actually in Hebrew is the word Yahweh. It's in four letters though. Capitalize Y-H-W-H. Yahweh, or translated again, Elohim. That word, that expression, the Lord God, Yahweh, Elohim, is used 20 times in chapter 2 and chapter 3 of Genesis. 20 times. And then only is used once more for the next five books. Interesting. The compound use of the word Yahweh and Elohim stresses that this God with whom the first humans have special fellowship with is none other than the creator of everything just spoken of. It's the same. Thus, thus so many reference, same reference, same reference. So the God who put all into place now gets intimate with one particular part of his creation. It's very specific, very clear. We lose it in the English language, but it's, it's there so strong in the Hebrew language that now it's like a real, it's like a turning of a chapter. It's like now we're at the point, humans. And it becomes very, very intimate and very personal as he focuses on that. In chapter 2, verse 1 and verse 4, it speaks of God creating the heavens and the earth, but when we move upon the prize of his creation, the center of his heart, the terminology switches as he creates mankind. The terminology now begins to change in Genesis. The next part, it says, the Lord God formed a man. Formed a man. The word formed is the Hebrew yatsar. It's unique to all that God has done so far. Yatsar speaks of molding, like the word they use, forming. If you have a more modern translation, you will see those words actually used. Molding, forming. And it's the picture of a potter on his clay. The fingers, thumbs, forefinger, moving and impressing with personalness to the piece of clay. 
That's the word form. The Lord God, prior he's speaking out and it's going into place. Now he with hands takes and begins to fashion, form, mold. The detail, the personal care, the attention of the creator to the created. We are unique from every other created work. It continues, verse 7. God formed a man from the dust. I've slowed it right down here. I don't spend time on words like this. But this was, is key. From the dust. Genesis chapter 1, all God's creative works come from the word bara, B-A-R-A, bara. Now the word afar is used here in chapter 2. It's describing something created from something else. So up to now, bara brought it into being from nothing. Now the word Yatzer is, or Afar, the word Afar is where he created it from something. He takes it from something. Man was created from a pre-existing material. What was the material? Dust. We came from dust. Verse 7 continues. God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The manner of breath being imparted speaks of our dignity by God. It speaks of his spirit. The breath is the word used, spirit of God. Nothing else had that. Then it continues, the man became a living creature or the man became a living being. Again, man didn't revolve or come from a living creature. We were made from a non-living matter. We did not evolve. We did not come from another creature. Very specific. We see in contrast all humans who descended, you and I today, different than Adam. Adam formed from the dust, breathed into his nostrils, spirit, Zoe of God. Now every one of the descendants following, and that's us, every one of the descendants that follow Adam and Eve come from a set of parents. We start off as living creatures. We start off a single fertilized egg, okay? Biology. Therefore, since we are all here today, we all came from a fertilized egg. Our, here's the word, ensoulment began at the moment of the fertilization. We call that the beginning of conception. At the point of conception, ensoulment began. What is ensoulment? Well, soulment is when the body, soul, and spirit came together. Created man, different from everything else. And so body, soul, and the ensoulment of man began at the egg, the fertilization, man, woman, together, the egg. Ensoulment began, and, and, we, and that's the beginning of life. Beginning of life at conception from Genesis. Um, we see this teaching is reinforced in Psalms 51 verse 5, where in Psalms 51 5, it says, And in sin did my mother conceive me. Here the psalmist is explicitly stating that it was me that existed from conception. I existed from conception. Not a blob, not a bunch of cells, not I later became a me. At conception, I became a fully me. A fully me. A full person. And so on. The body, soul, and spirit 
The unity is united at the point of conception and will remain united until we physically die. And when we physically die, we break the connection. Starts at the egg, ends at your physical body dying. For believers, for those of us in Christ Jesus, this connection gets restored in the final resurrected bodies. Connection's restored. Okay? New topic. The Garden of Eden. The Hebrew word for garden is the word gan, G-A-N, gan. It means paradise. The Garden of Eden, in the words, means probably a walled enclosure, a pleasure garden. It's important to know that... uh, that where the garden was, people have said, where is the Garden of Eden? Uh, nobody knows. The reason we do not know, it's impossible to know where this garden was because of the global covering of the flood in Noah's day. It totally rearranged Earth's topography. We can't find it. We won't be able to find it. It's changed. But we find there's two main things focused, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in this garden. Physical death, let's talk about the tree of life. Physical death is a punishment for sin. Talked about, it's going to be talked about in the next chapter, chapter 3. Physical death is the punishment for sin. It would be fair to assume that had Adam kept the divine commandment not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, had he kept the divine commandment and just ate from the tree of life, it's fair to assume he would not have died. Because the penalty of sin was death. In Genesis chapter 3 verse 2, if we jumped ahead a moment, it reveals that God prevents Adam from eating the tree of life after he ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God then stops his ability to eat of the other tree. Because if he ate of the other tree after having eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and having sinned and having fallen, then having eaten from the tree of life he would have been eternally in that state of fallenness with no hope of recovery. He now had to remove the eternal tree of life now. Now there was a process by which we experience of life, suffering, dying, and death, and then to be restored one day. But the tree of life needed to be removed, and it is removed. We see that in chapter 3, verse 2. The tree of life was not to become accessible again until... Revelation 21, verse 4. Revelation 22, verse 2. The tree of life will one day become available. The tree of life is spoken of in the final days. The eternal state. When we will no longer have even the possibility of sin. There will be no more death, no more crying, those scripture verses say. Because the tree of life, and it speaks of it again, will once more flourish. Then we have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, this means the ability to determine what is right and what is wrong. Here, the ability to determine what is right and wrong. Now, you and I, we know here today that we do not make right decisions apart from God. Leave it to us, we make bad decisions, our fallen nature. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is that we have assumed that we can now make the best and right and pure decisions. Indeed, it characterizes the lawlessness that we see later in the book of Judges, that having sinned, we, in the book of Judges, there's a refrain that is repeated, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This is the epitome of 
the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Having partaken of it, we believe we know best. We live that in this, this moment in time and this existentialism in which we are part of is that we somehow know best for each other. There is no right. There is no wrong. It's all relative. It will change with time. We determine our own fate. We determine our own destiny. But if we really take a hard look, how's that going? It's not going very well. It didn't go well back then either. Characterizes the attempt in our own wisdom to be God or God-like. And we fell. Let's move on to the topic of man's first duties and restrictions. This is found in verse 15. So the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Now, read that again. The Lord God put man in the Garden of Eden to work it, to take care of it. Did you note that? That in the pre-fall state, people were not meant to be doing nothing. <laughs> they were meant to work. I remember telling some teenagers that one time, and they go, oh, no. No, you were meant to work. You say, oh, it's part of the fall. No, it wasn't. Granted, work back in the pre-fall would have been easy and pleasurable. That's true. We're going to talk a bit more of what happened after the fall, because now all of a sudden the plant life began to develop briars and thorns. The fields resisted man. It's part of the fall. All creation is affected by the fall. Prior to that, the work and the tilling and the garden would have been easy and it would have been pleasurable. We have every reason to believe that. Uh, so, so God gives Adam huge freedom to eat of the immense variety of all the fruit, the trees. Remember vegetarian. Everything's vegetarian here. With one exception. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for eating when you eat from it, you will certainly die. One command. One command amongst all the stuff. One, one situation there. But the future of the human race hinged on that one. Remember, if he didn't give us that one, then we were never created in his image and likeness. We have to have the option to love him back. We have to have the option to obey him. There has to be an option. Or there is no love and there is no true likeness in the image of the Father. And so the one thing, it wasn't like a plantation of trees. It was one thing. And the one command, it says the word die. The word die here, you will surely die. Dying, it actually means dying, you shall die. That's how it's actually said. Dying, you shall die. What does that mean? Dying, you shall die. Well, here's an example. If you went out in the summertime and chopped off a, a branch off a tree, it falls on the concrete. It's accurate to say the branch is already dead. It's accurate. It's already dead because you've severed the source of life for that branch. But the reality is the process of physical death is going to take some time. You see, the cells and the leaves will continue to photosynthesize, and that will happen for several hours. It'll continue to produce for several hours. Likewise, the same thing. When Adam sinned, he was immediately severed from the source of life. But the dying process took him 930 years. It's accurate to say, the moment you were conceived is the moment you begin to die. It's accurate. It's kind of morbid, but it is accurate. Then the clock begins to towards death, the sure thing. 
And so dying you will die. Dying you, dying you will die. So at the beginning of life, and that's okay, I, <laughs> I totally get it. When you see a baby and you hold a baby in your arms that they're at the beginning of life. Because they are to life in the physical. But they are moving towards the end of the physical where there will be that disconnection. Okay, let's move on. Topic, the creation of Eve. Genesis chapter 2, verse 21. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib. He had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. The man said, hey, hey, hey. I always say that in there. That's not actually there, but I think it should be. Man says, hey, hey, hey. Okay, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Let's talk about that for a second. From sleeping Adam, don't fall into a deep sleep, men. From sleeping Adam, God now removes the rib and makes the woman. Notice the uniqueness again in the creation of Eve. The uniqueness is reflected in a different verb used in the creation of Eve by God. The word is bana, B-A-N-A, B-A-N-A-H, bana. Remember for Adam, God formed, yatsar, that's the word, God formed Adam. For Eve, he built her, bana, built her from Adam. Formed from the dust, now built her from Adam. She is never meant to be separate, but meant to be a part of. Wasn't that beautiful? When you think and slow down and look at that. It reinforces the brief mention in Genesis chapter 127 that both man and woman were created in God's image together. And it further connects men and women with each other, equal in nature as God created us. Now here's information I didn't know. Did you know that the rib, has anybody here ever broken a rib on yourself? You've cracked a rib or broken a rib. How many have done that? It is really painful, is it not? Oh my goodness, and it takes forever to heal. Okay, I did that one time. I was running a wheelbarrow and it caught, knocked out a rib. Okay, painful, took forever. Here's the interesting information, not that part. Here's the interesting information. The rib is the one bone in the human body that will readily grow back. I honestly never asked the question, so I never knew that answer. It's not uncommon for surgeons to remove a rib to make it easier to operate on the organs inside a chest. Because a rib will grow back. Oh, there's information for you. Okay, let's move to the next topic. The genesis of the family. 24, verse 25. This is where I wanted to just bring the finale. Because I think... This is it. This is it. It's the family. This is where the heart of the father is. Verse 24. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Two quick verses. But it's the heart of our father. We need to slow it down. I'm, I'm bringing it back into first gear here in idling. This last passage shows how Adam and Eve's marriage was the precedent for all marriages. One man, 
one woman, heterosexual, heterosexual monogamy. Sets the pattern. Although polygamy is practiced throughout the Old Testament, many characters having wives, where did Cain get his wife from? Where did all these women come from? All that stuff. Incestual relationships. By the way, I'm going to address that in a couple sessions from now. I just spent a session, not a whole session around that topic, but a whole session around Cain and Abel. And then the genealogies that come out of that. Then Seth comes on the scene, the murder. And then the overlapping of generations as we begin to look at generations and understand how you head cities. Now, cities don't think of Toronto. Cities are communities, villages, when they refer to cities. They're communals of people. And you will see that be unpackaged as we look at this uh, in the days ahead. But for now, you see this one man, one woman, heterosexual, uh, uh, together for life, and this sets the precedent for mankind. Now, um, again, there's been thoughts out there, there's teachings out there, teachings that there were other beings created that man married. They've used some words, and we'll talk about that maybe one day, about some of the terminologies, that there were half angels, half man, uh, some of the terminologies of that. Here's, here's the key thing to keep in mind. If that were true, those people from those lineages could never be converted, would never know redemption, because redemption is only through the seed of Adam. From the seed of Adam. That follows to the seed of Jesus. And anything outside could never be covered under redemption. That alone nullifies the impact of what there could be out there, angels and stuff. And Hebrews, he talks about how angels will never know. Uh, and so, again, spend a bit more time at another time. But we see in all this, there needs to be the concept, the direct line from Adam. And uh, immediately after the Lord God created the first man and woman, the Bible says he blessed them. And then he spoke to them. In fact, the first command in all scripture appears in this section. It's interesting that the first command given to Adam and Eve has to do with the family. Verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruit. This is 128, back chapter earlier, 128. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Back to Genesis 2, final verse. We zoom in. And we see the subject of the family as God desires it. The plan of God before the fall. Genesis 2, 24. I'm going to read them again, 24 and 25. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. I want to take a moment and talk about that. This is about families. It's about husbands and wives and about having children. Four main elements come out of that passage. From the earliest of time, God cared so much about the family, he provided this foundational ingredient necessary to bring a bond that will hold the family together. Church, you know it. I don't have to tell you this. Understand the strength of a town, a nation, the world, civilization, is built or falls on the strength of the family. Does it make sense now that the number one attack of the enemy is going to be on the family? Because if it can be severed in this early place where the heart of the father begins to set in motion his family, if it can be severed there, if it can be destroyed there, if it can be muddied there, 
then you can affect everything that follows. And our restoration is a restoration back into God's plan for family, his family. Remember, this is before God said anything about the workplace. And I'm going to talk about uh, Jubal and Jabal and Tubal Cain and Lamech and who out of vengeance killed somebody and the beginning of agriculture, the beginning of the industry and the beginning of arts. There's three people we're going to come to. And we see where arts, industry and agriculture come from. Uh, before God talks about any of that, before God talks about the ramification of Lamech and his two wives, going to talk about that, before it begins to unfold of Enoch and the significance of Enoch, the man who walked with God and was translated. And he, he, as far as we know, he didn't die. He just walked right into glory with, the, with God. All of that, before, all that, before God talks about health, he talks about government, schools, church, law. He spells out the primary principle of domestic health and happiness, and it has to do with the family. The family. Four things. Starts off, the first thing he says, that is why a man leaves his father. Number one, leave mom and dad if you're getting married. Okay. Um, in order for, okay, let's look at it this way. A newborn baby, in order for a newborn baby to begin to grow, you got to cut the what? The umbilical cord. So no, in fact, if you leave the umbilical cord, if you go, oh, poor little baby, keep you connected to the mother just in case, the baby and the mother's lives will be put in jeopardy. They've got to be severed. And so it's necessary to cut from the parent in order for life to grow. It's important, and this was the principle, it's the same principle, you got to cut the umbilical cord of the parents in order to grow. Verse 24 does not say, for this reason, a man will abandon his father and mother. It does not say, for this reason, a man will dishonor his father and mother. It simply says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. Those are very key. To leave dad and mom means to break the parent-child bond. It means to sever. It means to become emotionally dependent. The strings that once provided your, secure, your security, your protection, your financial assistance, your physical needs, those strings must be severed. Any of these ties, if you bring them over into your marriage, will prevent your marriage from sealing. You must break to seal. God says it right up front, Genesis 2. This is perhaps the best wedding gift you can give, mom and dad, to your sons and daughters. You may wish to say it even at the wedding, and some do. And then say it again at the reception, and some do. That you release them from your contract so that they can be bonding together. Bless them in that bonding. We like to do that in our ceremonies. That they pray, parents, and the parents say, I now release you. I now release you to them. And they, and they give that, and then the child says, I now sever my connection from you. Doesn't, it says leave. didn't say that you're going to dishonor them. didn't say you're never going to see them again. But you're going to sever that. That needs to be severed. The strings attached. Then he goes on to the next part. He says, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. Second phrase, United. Um, United, the word united actually is a very strong word. It is, it actually means in the Hebrew to glue, like, you know, crazy glue, glue kind of thing. It means to cling to. It is, it is meant not to come apart again. Once glued, 
always glued. This is a picture of permanence that God was establishing for the family early, 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 early. Permanence. Severance must be permanent. Your husband, you know, sometimes, and, and we do it in families when our kids are young, and you know, mommy, mommy. But sometimes when you call your spouse your mommy later in life, you know, it kind of takes the romance out of it. Calling your husband, you know, daddy all the time, and the kids are gone from the family or they're teenagers. They don't need to be hearing mommy and daddy. They need, go back to your whatever your affection, and keep it PG though, but whatever your affection of them is, let the kids see it. Let them know that you are mad over, madly in love over that person. That the number one person is them in your life. They see it. They want to see that. They want to see that. They long to see that in a world that doesn't have any attachments. They need to see it. The permanence that is spoken of here. Keep that fire a fire and not a spark. The Hebrew meaning of united again to cling, glue, glue to... Much of today's problems often in marriage is largely due to the fact that many are entering marriage now believing you can terminate it if you quickly. You can terminate it quickly. And thus, a lot of living together is taking place because they don't want to get into the contracts and covenants and stuff. It gets too detailed, too murky, too binding, too um, you're losing your own rights. And so we, we try to, we live together. But the problem is, is, is there's no less pain when they separate. That data is out on all that. The pain is just as real. And, uh, and, and it, it, it puts a temporariness to this. Where God says, it's just, you, need to, you need to work at this being something permanent. Make something permanent. The uh, Bible actually says, till death do us part. Oftentimes we are replacing that. And I've had people ask me in marriage ceremonies, can we, can we, yeah, can we make it till love do us part? First of all, they probably have no idea what love is. We can get into the four levels of love, and if we really can agree, then you wouldn't put that into your ceremony because it's going to be a binding love. So until death do us part. An illustration I came across, and I was watching this with um, Sir Winston Churchill of England back in World War II. England was being bombed destroyed, battered, city blocks, buildings crumbled, bridges fell. Stubborn prime minister, stubborn prime minister, refused to budge to even parliament. He simply had a rule of thumb, and it became, it's become famous. I mean, if, he, if, if London had been taken over, it would probably be his you know, Achilles heel. But he became famous on these six words. Here were his six words. Some of you know it. His words during all of that destruction, his words were, wars are not won by evacuation. Those were his six words, infamous words. Wars are not won by evacuation. Those are really good words. I happen to firmly believe with the person who said, there are two processes in life we must never start prematurely. One is embalming. And the second is divorce. Let's not start them premature. It wouldn't hurt, especially on special days, to recommit our love and permanence to each other. Okay, moving on. Number three, became one flesh. Become one flesh. United. The word united. Unity. Uh, 
And the word, it says, become one flesh. The word become actually is more accurate to say becoming one flesh. It's actually meant to be becoming. It actually has in it continuous. It's a process, not instant. We know that. I mean, uh, when you got married, I've, I ask couples this when they get married all the time. When you get married, how many people are you marrying? And they will look at their loved one and their eyes go big. And they go, I'm marrying him. One. I'm marrying her. One. And then I correct them and I say, no, you're marrying three. You're marrying him and his mom and his dad. And they look and go, no, no, don't say that. The reality is, is they are the result of their mom and dad. Therefore, your wife, your husband with your... With their unique background, their temperament, their habits, their scars, their feelings, their goals, ambition, gifts, blah, 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 has come from where they came from. They've been formed. They've come. That's their environment. That's been their culture. And it has, it has fashioned them. That's why I've also included in the ceremony that we also give honor to mom and dad too. We give them thanks during this ceremony too for having brought them to this point. But we recognize that that it's a process of marriage. The person is not like, boom, all of a sudden yours and they don't revert back to things. It's a process. It's a long process. It can be a lifelong process. But here's the thing. At the marriage, the process begins. The beginning, and that's what it's spoken. Becoming. Now you are becoming each other. You're becoming. Note that it says unity is not to be misconstrued with uniformity. God brought Eve to Adam, not to be a female Adam, but to be distinct, to be unique, to be different from him. She is vastly different. As a matter of fact, husbands and wives, i got a question for you, and you are allowed to put your hand up. You might want to put them up together, though. Here's the question. Husbands and wives, did you marry somebody very different from yourself? If that's the case, would you lift your hand? Okay. Most of us do. They're very different, not just physically. They're very different. They think different. They do think different. And, and, it, and it still does drive Lori and I crazy because I approach something what I think she should be responding. She doesn't respond that way. She thinks I, need to re- I don't respond that way because we're so different. And that is by design. There is something. The design of that is not uniformity. God didn't put us in uniformity. He put us in unity where the differences together we begin to work out the differences. Opposites attract. Two people, listen to this, two people actively desiring to fulfill each other. Two people that fuse two separate hearts in unison to become one. The coming together of two tributaries, which after being joined in marriage, two tributaries become one channel. They flow in one direction. Two people carrying one burden. Two people with one responsibility. Two people with one obligation. It is the most miraculous thing ever. It's miraculous. Because two become one and complete each other. Wow. Unity. And then God says, and both were naked and felt no shame. Before you run off to a nudist camp, this last mention of 
both were naked and felt no shame, is the last of the four. It's last mentioned because only can true vulnerability and trust be mutually shared after severance, permanence, and unity are in place. We get the order mixed up, doesn't work. Thus, in relationships that are not under the covenant of marriage, frequently don't have lasting ability. The Hebrew translates the word naked means laid bare. It emphasizes not just physically, it emphasizes total and complete nakedness. In other words, spiritual nakedness, emotional nakedness, physical nakedness. The Amplified Version says it this way, they weren't ashamed and they had no hidden areas, no hang-ups, no embarrassments, no fears. Total transparency. And it is here, at this moment, they experience unlimited ecstasy. They experience intimacy. All the ingredients. You pull out the ingredients, you just have raw nakedness and sex, primal kind of stuff, then you don't have intimacy. You don't have emotional connection, spiritual connection, all the things that need to bring one together. You lack all that. Therefore, you go looking for it somewhere else. I find it unnerving that in the very last chapter of, um, or sorry, not the next chapter, in chapter 3, in Genesis chapter 3, when sin enters in, that Adam and Eve, the first thing they did, first thing they did was they covered themselves up. So the last part of Genesis 2, totally transparent. First part of Genesis 3, cover up. What a contrast. What a contrast. And uh, you find when sin enters in, they cover up. What is cover up? He's, they said, I was afraid because I was naked. They weren't afraid for all the time before. I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. First time of hiding. So I hid. Shame, guilt, condemnation. It's now upon them. The repercussions of sin. And for the first time, man becomes self Conscious. It's about me. It's about me. Self-conscious. We see it first happen in Genesis chapter 3. Up until then, they were lost with the others. Genesis 3, sin, self-consciousness. Up to then, total vulnerability with one another. I want to, um, I'm going to stop there. I want to pray for for marriages today. I just want to pray for marriages. I got to this and I go, God, bless the homes, the families, the marriages. Whatever's getting in there, know that the attack, the attack happened 6,000 years ago. It didn't turn out well. And the attack is no less violent today and invasive today. I want to pray for the families. Let's do that. Father in heaven, Lord, we just bow before you. And we thank you, God, that, Lord, you have not withheld how this started. And that uh, there's a lot of information in there, but just as we come to that final part, the family, the making of man, of woman, and then coming together uh, to be a family. Lord, I pray for families here today. 
And maybe church, if you're here today, and individuals, if you're here and your home is, you, it's under attack. It's under attack. This prayer is for you. Would you join your hearts with this prayer? Father in heaven, we just pray for our families right here. We pray for husbands and wives. We pray for our marriages. The things that have gotten in. The things that we have, uh, that Satan has demonstrated his ability to attack us in. Lord, I pray healing on the home. Healing on the families. That, Lord, there would be uh, a reuniting of the things that we've been talking about here. There would be a reuniting that maybe we have begun to sever with something else outside of our, our wife, outside of our husband. That, Lord, maybe we haven't, we haven't, we've been too quick to drop the D word in our marriage. That if this happens, we're just going to D word. And we don't treat it like a four-letter word. We don't treat it like the unmentionable. We don't treat it that, that if God brought together, then, then, let nothing, let nothing separate us. Lord, we do know that there were provisions for divorce. There were provisions made. But right here, right now, we just pray blessings on the homes, blessings on the marriages. And so, Lord, I pray strengthen our resolve for unity in our marriages. That, Lord, we would strive to bring you back into the center of it. That, Lord, it's not about me and my rights. That we would strive that, God, you would be center again in our, our hearts and our home. So, Lord, I pray healing this morning. Healing on broken homes. I know in an audience of this size, there's probably numerous hurting husbands and wives here today. And so, Lord, bring healing. God, we cry out for healing. Lord, we know it's your heart to bring healing. Lord, whatever the difference is, whatever the situation, you have a plan. You have a resolution. So, Lord, I pray that we would find it. I pray that we would rediscover it. I pray that, God, there would hope would arise where darkness is. And that, Lord, we would see a miracle, a true miracle, a miracle of becoming one again, that that miracle would be in our lives, our homes, our testimony, to testify again to the next generation. That with God, all things are possible. So, Lord, we pray, reach out and minister. Holy Spirit, this morning. God, you know the situation. You know the areas. And so, Holy Spirit, have your way here. Have your way in hearts. Have your way in brokenness. Have your way where we have cried and we can't cry anymore. Have your way when we have tried and we feel we can't try anymore. Have your way when we are discouraged and we have quit. Lord, can you re-spark something? That God, not only for us, but for another generation. So Lord, reestablish Genesis 2 in our midst, we pray. The power, the authority, in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Aurora Cornerstone podcast. Remember to subscribe. For more information about our church and our ministries, visit auroracornerstone.ca